series of Associated, where we decided to create a four-part series on our experiences in getting into VC, or rather specifically myself and my special co-host today, Tundi. Hi, Tundi. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying the Swedish winter. Amazing. And I think it'll be very helpful to contextualize why we started this mini-series in the first place is do a little bit about our backgrounds. Um, so would you like to start? Yeah, um, I can. I can opine. So uh, I'm Tunde. I grew up in London, um, but over the past three or four years, I've been boomeranging across Europe, working with startups, um, and most recently in VC. So I kind of moved from from, from London, where I was working as an investment banker, to, to Berlin, where I was working at an agricultural tech startup called Infarm. And then post that, did a bunch of venture internships, one back home in London at Local Globe, and then one more recently uh, in Sweden, starting January 2020 at Creandum. And since September, I've been working full-time at Icebreaker Ventures, where I am an associate. Actually, uh, I think there's some congratulations in order because you've just become an associate. Is that right? Yeah, and I think you must have had the hesitation while I was trying to like figure out what I was. It's kind <laughs> of like on your birthday when someone asks what age are you, and you you kind of, your brain short circuits. Yeah, so. right. You you so like the tip of your tongue automatically, and you have to change it up. But congratulations, and perhaps I can give a little bit of intro about myself. So in terms of my background. I worked in the startup world for a bit, then managed to land an internship at Playfair Capital. And then whilst at uh, True, which uh, is the company I ended up working after Playfair, I founded uh, Associated with Lois and Petra. And then most recently, I was very fortunate to land a role at Project A, a VC that's and I think what we both have in common, Tunde, is that we've done a fair few job interviews, right? <laughs> yeah, far, far too many for my liking. Um, I think I counted at least like 30, 35 applications to venture funds. So you get the privilege of taking advice from a loser. But as part of this like repeated losing process, I guess I picked up a lot about the lay of the land and what a VC interview looks like. So hopefully you can do as I say and not as I did. Right, exactly. I think you summed it up so nicely is that I think the purpose of this mini-series is to uh, have a jump start or or basically uh, not make the mistakes that we did during what are very challenging interviews. And I think there are a lot of material out there about how to get into VC. But I saw personally when I was trying to do some digging, very little information about once you're in the interview, what to expect. It's quite an unusual process, right? It's not those standard questions like from when I've spoken to my friends wanting to get into the Baines and McKinsey's of this world, there's so many resources on how to deal with the case study challenge and this interview and how to respond. But I couldn't find anything that out there that was equivalent for the VC interview. Did did you? 
No, um, there, there weren't any really good resources available. I think one of the problems is that venture interview processes are quite bespoke. Right. But you know, one of the one of the fortunate things about sailing forward is, is that you get a chance to to draw parallels and and see where processes are in fact similar. And so, I guess these this four episode mini series is like a compendium of repeated themes that come across in these in these interviews that we've had between the two of us. Yeah. Exactly. And I suppose just before we crack on, maybe outline what the the different episodes entail, should we give a little bit of an antidote of like how we ended up meeting? Um, and it's quite a nice little story because I think it's like um, a celebration of the ecosystem um, in a way. But basically the story goes, I was looking for someone to do this series with and I came across this amazing blog post and it was written by a person who boldly wrote about how challenging it is to get into VC and was exceptionally open about his experiences. And that person was? It was Harry Stebbings. <laughs> <laughs> it was Harry Stebbings and unfortunately he was busy. So I decided to call Tendai up also coincidentally written a very good blog post so um we definitely should make sure we highlight that in the notes because i found it a very valuable resource and actually how i ended up getting an introduction to tunde was through diversity vc because that was something that you attended right tunde yeah so i was i had the privilege of being in part of the first diversity vc cohort so yeah, and that's that's actually how I ended up with that internship at Local Globe. So I did that in summer 2019. It was a very kind of short and sweet, but it was a pretty transformative five and a half week process. Where I, I, I learned a lot and definitely changed the course of my career. Nice. So I'm so glad that as a result, it's happened. And indeed, shall we discuss what we're going to be discussing <laughs> yeah we can let's let's do that and there are four topics on the agenda so fund specifics which is about how you make sure that you're totally prepared to talk about the fund that you're applying to company evaluation proving your analytical chops personal questions so you know how do you pass the uh, airplane test with the with your interviewer um, and finally, the only part of an interview that you can truly control, uh, the question section at the end. Nice. Cool. Well, I think for the first episode, we've decided to start off with fund specifics because this is a fundamental component of even understanding whether you want to get into VC. And actually, what I'm often surprised about is that when people reach out to me, whether that's LinkedIn or or even founders sometimes, they don't understand the the business model of venture capital. And one question that I had during an interview, which I think is actually a generally very good question to almost screen out someone from the get-go, is how do VCs make money? And very kindly, the partner at the firm guided me into this question a little bit. And he said, the LP has given a fund $100 million. How do VCs make money? 
Yeah, and you know, thank you for teeing me up, Francesca, but I'm going to have a go at answering that question. So um, assuming that you get 100 million from your LPs, which stands for Limited Partners, that's the coalition of insurers, pension funds, and, and rich people who invest in, in VC as an asset class, yeah, normally you'd have to spend that money um, over a 10, 10-year cycle. You can then presume that the fund splits that into you know, 10 chunks of 10 million buying like a 20% stake um, in each of those companies at inception. Over time, that gets diluted down to 15%. Um, and what happens is that when you, you kind of assume a, a high fatality rate for startups, so at the end of this 10-year investment period, there's only you know, one survivor left worth, worth a significant outcome. And given that uh, venture funds target like a, a hurdle of three times return on investment, that one surviving company would need to be worth two billion for your 15% stake to be worth three X, which would be 300 million. So that's roughly VC fund math. And one thing that you'll find this he's talking about a lot is this thing called a, a power law, which basically explains or is a kind of shorthand way of describing that distribution where the top 20% of your portfolio companies represent normally like 80% of the returns. And, I've, and I think that often, you know, outside observers, um, as well as, you know, myself, when I was first looking at VC, wondered why you know, VCs weren't investing in, you know, very kind of stable businesses like private equity style businesses or, you know, low risk, low risk businesses. And, and it's purely the fact that startups are, are so risky that you have to assume a high failure rate. And so in a nutshell, your winners need to pay for your, um, so to speak, losers. Yeah, I think that's beautifully answered. Top marks there. And for those who are listening, who are a little bit like dilution, rich people, exiting, listen to that a few times, maybe write down some key things that you you don't understand because it's so important for you to understand this dynamic. Just to add a couple of things into the mix that if you were ever to be asked this question, you don't need to add these on top because it just complicates things. Um, but you know, it's not necessarily as simple as uh, Tundi described it because there are some components to consider. For example, um, over the course of the fund's lifetime, uh, the general partners agree with the limited partners to take a proportion of that, for example, 100 million as an operations fee or a management fee um, so that they can pay their staff over over that 10-year period. That explains why there are so few people in VC and it's very hard to get a role in venture capital because obviously limited partners are reluctant to give a huge percentage of that 100 million away to salaries of individuals. So there's only a finite amount of funds available to put into the salaries of your your team. Um, and so that really is something to, to consider when applying for a role in venture capital or even setting your expectations of how hard it's going to get in because 
fund is never going to grow to a huge number of people. It's just not how the fund dynamics work. So yeah, it's important to understand this. So that's something to think about. And the one other thing that I think might be pushed for you to talk about after you've brilliantly answered that question is to understand the concept of carry. So we've talked about the fund has to return 3x to the investor um, or the LPs, so rich people, as you beautifully put it, or though often they are described as high net worth, pension funds or insurers or, or private banks, a whole host of different people who are interested in investing in this asset class is this concept of, of carry. So you think, as I previously described, these salaries, right, they're not going to go up you're a general partner you you've set that fee and you've made that agreement with the the limited partners so depending on the fund you know it's still going to be a considerable salary but it's not you know millions by any means um, yeah and uh, that, that that reminds me of something that uh, a partner at Borderton um told me uh while I was in the future VC internship which was that actually being a VC partner is a bad way to earn a very high income compared to other parts of high finance, such as investment banking and private equity. So a lot of the people, at least in the kind of traditional VC game, are you know consciously or sub or unconsciously taking like a relatively large pay cut versus um, what they could be earning in other industries. So it's not all glitz and glamour. Yeah, right, exactly. And you think, okay, well, why why would they do this? And it's back again to this concept of carry and that 3x return. So as a form of an agreement between the limited partners and the general partners is that once that one company within your portfolio sells out and you've got always a hundred million or however much the LPs have put in in the first place must be returned to the limited partners. But that profit is agreed to be split between the limited partners and the general partners. And occasionally some other members of the VC team, so principal levels normally. And again, this is something that you need to consider if you want to get into venture capital is that you're not going to get a proportion of the profits as a junior person, typically. So you're not going to get that nest egg that the general partners and principals are sitting on and committed to in order to get that massive bonus at the end of a fund cycle. So it's really, really important, again, to consider how a venture capital business models work in order to understand the risk that you're taking as a junior, because you're not even going to have that big bonus, even if you, in the first place, found the startup that exited uh, at 3 billion at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think we covered that quite well. Another question that I, um, I've definitely seen pop up a lot uh, and which you have really no excuse to not be prepared for is the uh, why this fund question. So, you know, normally... In the interview within the first minute, someone will ask you why you're here and why you're interested in joining their illustrious institution. And yeah, so I, I mean, I think this is one of those questions where it's inexcusable to to not have an answer to it. It's a classic. Yeah. So I, because you 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 gave me the privilege of starting last time, 
I'm going to let you have a crack at answering this one first. And I'm absolutely delighted that you've asked me this question because I think it's actually why I started Associated alongside Petra and Lois in the first place because um, I felt like when we interviewed our guests who are typically individuals who work in VC, um, it was an amazing way of basically gathering all this information in order to smash this question out of the park because hearing it from the horse's mouth so to speak they've got the spiel of how the fund works the dynamics of the fund all these questions that we ask on associated you can use as ingredients to basically throw back at the person that's interviewing you um and so what are very important things to understand before going into the interview with this fund is what are their key usps and you often can find this from uh, reading their website. One VC business model that springs to mind is that they offer, quite interestingly, all their founders carry in, in the fund. So just try and pull out um, the USP that they shout about all the time and say, that is why you want to join the fund is because you really resonate with this unique selling point. Another thing that you can discuss is that you think their portfolio isn't very impressive. Um, you really think that they're fantastic businesses and you're aligned with what you think is a good business because you're you know, a huge admirer of the, the portfolio. Make sure you can list them off because that's going to be the next question. But that's also something that you can really massage their ego of saying, you know, love, love your mission, your unique selling point and all your companies you've invested to date. And if the fund is old enough, you can also discuss their performance. Um, so have they exited some companies? Have they raised a new fund? And how that's incredibly impressive because their last one was 100 million. They recently raised 200 million, demonstrating that they're ready to hire, which is fantastic. Um, and also, you know, they've obviously managed to convince more limited partners to, to back them with conviction. Yeah, and I, I think that was a really, really comprehensive answer. So I, I'm not going to like opine on 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 you know things to add there, but maybe where I would contribute is around how you actually do this information gathering task. So if you you don't want to start your own podcast uh, to to <laughs> kind of get them to tell you themselves you then um to it Tunday. you listen to associated exactly so <laughs> one of the things work for you <laughs> exactly so one of the things that i always did when i was applying was first sit on uh like a podcast search site and just started typing in names of people who had worked at, at that fund um just to see if they kind of popped up in in, in any kind of uh interviews and one of the, the things that VCs love doing is they just love to talk and they often will tell you things they would never write down when they're, when they're like, I guess, being recorded. So you, you can get a lot of insights through that method. Also, normally around the time that a fund an, uh, announces a new fund, they do like a press run. Um, and, you know, they'll have their press release, maybe three or four articles where they talk about, you know, why their new fangled vehicle is... Is, is the best in the world and why you should take money from them. Then there are some kind of, you know, simple things which you can do, which are maybe less specific to the fund, but, you know, will prove that you've, you've done your homework and you're interested. So, you know, knowing 
you can talk a lot about the stage that a fund is at. So you can say, hey, I, if you're applying for a pre-seed fund, then you can say, I just really love the pre-seed. I think it's the most interesting stage and that's your focus. Um, maybe if they're kind of sector specific, you can do something similar there. Some some funds are like remote first. So point nine, for example, um, invest anywhere, which is actually fairly unique for a seed fund in, um, I guess, headquartered in Europe. And, you know, that would be, an example of a thing that you could say if you were in that interview that, that attracts you to the, the farm. But, you know, don't really need to add too much to your glorious answer. Well, that's very kind. I think one more thing to add potentially is what you can bring to the table. You have looked through the team and you think, okay, there is room for me in this fund because of my profile and the new component. So that is another quite smart angle of saying, you know, in, instead of, I love everything you do and it relates to me, it's like, I never say that. <laughs> Definitely a good thing to say, but also, and in addition to that, I feel like I could bring this to the table, which will give the fund an edge over all the others, which also helps, I think. Exactly. Um yeah, and just yeah, remember to massage egos. Uh, that's always good. Um, um, so perhaps a pretty closely related question, which you know also more reflects the the nature of the venture market right now, is is one where the interviewer asks you to imagine that they are a, a company that um, that you're looking to invest in um, on behalf of said fund that you're interviewing at, and they ask you to kind of sell um, or convince them, the portfolio company, to take the money from that fund. Um, I'm not going to force this on you straight away, Francesca. So, um, but, but, you know, this, this, this question overlaps significantly with the previous one, but it essentially is all about kind of weaponizing all of the things that, you know, you found interesting about the fund and framing them from the perspective of a portfolio company and, you know, why, for example, um, a fund's kind of operational model might be helpful as they try and build towards the next stage of fundraising or why a Berlin-based company might really want a Berlin-based partner who can be proximate and offer support from the ecosystem, etc. So I'm, I'm not sure if... So, yeah, I mean, in, in a nutshell, the, the, the trick here is to frame the, the kind of answers from the before question in a way designed to convince. And in practice, what if, if you are full-time in VC and you're, you're, you're bidding on a company, you are actually doing this quite a lot because, you know, a lot of the time the best companies really are um, quite competitive to, to, to invest into. So even from the from the first meeting, you will often start by kind of presenting who you are um, and 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 why you should take in in my case like ice why one you should take icebreakers money. Yeah, I think um, it's it's a really good question, or rather, it's it's a really good question to bring up. Um, and I think what might be helpful is to contextualize it. So in the case of what you're doing on a daily basis with Icebreaker, what are sort of things are you pulling out to sell to startups that you're speaking to at the moment? Yeah, so um, at, at Icebreaker, um, we we are a pre-seed focused fund, which is pretty pretty interesting niche because most most funds aren't really focused solely on the 
on the pre-seed. So we're, we're typically writing checks of like 150,000 to 800,000 euros. You can invest at like the idea stage, sometimes even before like the company has been incorporated. That's a pretty unique place to be. And so it means that, you know, we have been through that kind of repeat journey of helping companies really kind of iterate towards product market fit. Um, we don't claim that we're going to you know, take over the company and, and get you all of the way there. But what, what we offer is like a hands-on approach, bi-weekly meetings, and then also like a bunch of kind of like, you know, light touch support and workshops, which help you with things as, as you know, as basic as, you know, financial planning, putting together a pitch deck for, for your seed round, you know, can get pretty involved um, in terms of, you know, actually some kind of work stream. So again, it wouldn't be remiss to, for, 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 you know, one of the team members to do some portfolio work, like putting together a spreadsheet or helping with pricing or sales finance. Nice. I think that that's really helpful. And um, often when I'm discussing it, I will potentially pull out the experience of my team. So again, in the interview, if you've read up about each and every person that um, is going to be interviewing you, um, you know, again, it's another opportunity to stroke the ego. If you know a partner has in-depth experience within a certain sector, you can kind of build up a scenario of like, okay, they say, imagine a startup, for example, you know that the fund you're interviewing with has done some health tech investments. And so you can say, okay, in this scenario, um, it's a health tech investment that we're really trying to win. And then you can go into like, there are three partners that have experience in, you know, in health tech. They've exited with this portfolio company demonstrating that they're good at supporting this company along its journey. Um, and, you know, build up a story which really plays in the fund's favor, I think, would also be um, a good way to help formulate a fantastic answer to this question. Um, and I think that's about it with that one. And I think. Uh, another question that I want to discuss because I feel like the first time this question was asked of me, I I answered it so badly, <laughs> like awful, because I just was not expecting it, particularly the last part of the question and what it is or what it was and it's asked quite a lot I've figured out is what companies would you invest in our portfolio easy <laughs> the hard bit is and which one wouldn't you invest in have you been asked this question a few times Tindy uh, I have I have and sometimes multiple times in the same interview process really frustrating so I have a pretty funny story uh, I don't know, like the first round interview for a for a process, I got asked this question, and I, you know, kind of done all of my homework and was like super fresh, knew knew everything, or knew at least knew how to answer this one. Didn't know everything, but turned up at I don't know, like the sick for something round with someone who I hadn't met before, and they re asked this question, and by by this time I had kind of discarded all of my uh, research as useless old knowledge, and I had no idea. Yeah, I can't remember the names of any portfolio company that was in a world of trouble. Uh, oh, let's, no. let's, yeah, let's just say I didn't get that job, um, <laughs> and nor did I deserve it. But so this is this is a VC favorite question. 
the little remix version where it's like which one wouldn't you invest in is is pretty hard and i think it's quite harsh because you know the the information asymmetry is just humongous there and but yeah i you know in in this one i think the, the main thing they're trying to trying to see is they want you to kind of flex a bit of your kind of analytical side and also kind of help understand or try and get a, a picture for how you um process and evaluate limited information so these funds obviously know that you're going to know way less about their portfolio companies than than they do um, and you're normally going off especially at the early stage like a bunch of tech crunch articles no numbers so i think one way to kind of dispel fear is to just realize that there are there aren't that many wrong answers here i would advocate firstly just sitting on crunch base or, or something similar and just going through, let's say, the, the five to ten most recent first checks. So not, you know, if it's a seed fund, don't look at the fact that they invested in Spotify in 2008, I think, and just make notes on what you think about them, what you think they saw, and, you know, what you potentially see, um, and identify, like, two or three that you're really excited about and, and, can, talk, and can talk about. And, you know, the, the activities that you can speak on are, are everything from like the founder the founding team just how you see the kind of potential of the market to the defensibility of the business and um you know some some companies also you know if you're you might be fortunate enough to be able to see signs of life in a in a company or signs of growth and you you might be able to say like okay i could tell that you know this company's product and post we've got like oh you know ten thousand upvotes or something like that and it kind of ranked number one and that that signals that you're able to kind of source signal and you know recruit recruit evidence to help kind of back your judgments as well yeah i think i think that's a great tip i'd probably disagree with you in regards to one point which is to pick the top five or six latest ones um, my, and it is a lot of work granted, but my advice is to create a spreadsheet or create a word doc, not fussy and list all of the portfolio companies. And unfortunately with some, some of them, you know, it will take a while, but list all of them and make sure you've quickly had a look at every single one of them. And I, I don't have the best memory, but normally these startups have pretty jazzy logos and you can get a grip of like that one liner of, of what it does. And, and then pick five of your favorite ones. Now that could be like the ones that have TechCrunch articles so you can build a bit of conviction over why that is. But actually a point that helped me score at Project A was that I didn't list portfolio companies that were that had recently raised I'd actually gone through every single one of them um, and picked the ones that weren't necessarily the most obvious and I think that they really valued that that they even said that like congratulations because you know it's kind of dull if you just pick the ones that are just everyone talks about or that there is a medium blog about and you're just regurgitating what's been written on the media blog so I think it's in, important to to maybe consider that you have a unique angle and you're not necessarily repeating what you've read and everyone else will be reading um, and regurgitating back to the partners you know I I agree my my approach isn't to take the most popular ones it is more to take 
I have like a maybe a recency bias. Um, the the one of the tactical reasons for that is that if you take a you know portfolio company that raised five years ago and has not there's not been a peep from it since, then you're running a bit of maybe a, a bit of a risk of, of getting in trouble. That being said, it you know it could be going very well under stealth. So what I try and do, which I think tries to thread the needle between these two strategies, is like not pick any companies that have raised a, set, a subsequent round um, after the fund has invested. So I kind of bias towards the, the new investments and the new kind of initial checks. And then a lot of these companies might, you know, announce with relatively limited buzz. So actually they aren't obvious in the same way. And I think that almost kind of can square the two strategies. But, you know, the more thorough you can be and the more time you, you can spend on, you know, finding which ones you are happy to talk about, mm-hmm. um, the, the better your answer is going to be. Yeah, 100%. And I think when I interviewed or rather when Associated interviewed Kathy from Downing alongside Michael, she, she did a very uh, impressive thing, which I think everyone should do. Um, and which I carried forward in my interviews is that print off the Excel spreadsheet or the Word document of all the portfolio companies and your notes next to them and bring them to the interview. Or if it's in case of Zoom, to have it right next to you so that you can read. Because, you know, during that, that interview process, you're nervous, you might not have everything in your head. So just having those documents open and up and ready for you to sort of read through them. And they're, they're only going to be impressed by the fact that you've taken the time and they can visually see if you're doing an interview in person, the effort that you've taken. And apparently Michael was in the interview when he was interviewing Kathy with other partners, their minds were blown that she'd taken the effort to go through every single portfolio company. And actually she took it a step further and she thought about the value add that she could contribute towards each and every one of them, um, which I think is very impressive. Wow. No, that's, yeah, that is really impressive. Maybe it took her less tries than I, it took me. Um, Yeah. (laughs) He's a bit of a superstar, Kathy, but Tundi, how about that second part of the question, right? Which one's, wouldn't you invest in? Like, how do you approach what I think is one of the hardest questions to be asked in a VC interview? Okay. So I hate this question. I'm going to be in front of this. <laughs> I'm going to, and I think it's unfair. So, but I guess if you are forced to answer it, um, then there are a couple of things to keep in mind. So people are sensitive and have egos. So it makes sense to not, you know, dunk on things that you think are really bad ideas because obviously someone at that fund thought it was a good idea to invest in that. And that person may be interviewing you and will be fairly sore if, if you aren't kind of respectful in your disparaging of their investment. I think, secondly, one of the main reasons why I dislike this question is the information asymmetry. So you have very little way of knowing how well a portfolio company is is going. So again, I think one of the things to be careful about is the level of certainty that you apply to this answer. And with those two caveats, I think my approach would would, would be to 
to maybe pick, you know, one one or two core weaknesses, which are are theoretical um, about the business. So, for example, if you're looking at a marketplace business um, and you don't think it's a good idea, you might be able to attack the business along the lines of, you know, I'm not sure that um, that you'd be able to aggregate demand for this type of thing because the user is already overserved or, or something like that and, and just say that you know I think you know theoretically this would be a very good business however you know there is this one core issue which makes it difficult and so I think there's a point in there about identifying also kind of the positive about things about the, the case and then having like a but for and being able to say that you're not comfortable with that risk because of x y and z and maybe also being able to say what you would have to see or you would like to see to, to become positive on the case. That's like a good way to kind of get out of jail free. Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic tip. And I think two other things that I have used and la- was landed well, because again, it's like you have to answer this question very delicately. And, and one, which is quite good, <laughs> that worked well, was pick a portfolio company that has raised a huge amount of money because it's in a very hot, hot uh, market. So a good example is electric scooters. You know, you can argue that it's a winner takes all market. And my argument with, with the electric scooter is I wouldn't invest in it now. I think it's a great investment that you've made because you had, uh, you invested at the right time but I wouldn't invest in this startup now because it's too saturated and there is not enough space for a new player. Um, and that is quite a good way to, to get around that question. Um, so again, think of it as a, like a, the last mile delivery space. Again, there's like these DJs and gorillas of this world, like they've had a huge amount of investment. There's not going to be much room for the underdog that's starting up right now. So that is one that I've used uh, and has landed well. And another thing that I used is the regulatory component, that there's often a lot of businesses that rest on the fact that certain regulations are in place that allow them to work efficiently. And regulations are off, often dictated by governments. And so you usually use this card of, Again, it's a great business model, but it's very reliant on X regulation. And there is obviously a risk that this regulation will be taken out or manipulated by this government. And, th- and that's something that I would be very concerned about for X, Y, and Z reason. Uber is a good example, right, of the employment laws. Um, they've managed to sort of weasel their way out of it, but it's certainly something to consider in other business models that have fallen flat in the past based on just a regulatory change. And again, it doesn't involve, you know, basically criticizing the individual who made the decision to invest in any way. <laughs> so yeah, market and, and too late to, to start playing in it and regulation, I've found work well in the answer to those questions. And obviously that, that great ad of, um, of what you mentioned previously. Yeah, and I, I think maybe you've inspired me to, to add one more thing. Um, and this is maybe slightly more meta and is less to do with your answer, but you know, actively disagreeing 
wills kind of generally spark a debate. And often this question um, tacitly being used to evaluate how you disagree and whether you disagree well. So, you know, typically an investment committee or session involves conflict in a sense, because otherwise you can't make decisions. So being able to coherently argue your point and also, you know, to an extent, be able to, you know, take on board feedback, but also, you know, not fold instantly is a key to success in like a venture firm. And so, you know, just because you get pushback doesn't mean that mean that you've failed or that you're that you're wrong. And it also doesn't mean that you should fold instantly. However, it's a it's a, it's a tightrope that you need to walk. But that's really part of what you're being assessed on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And and just a final one with that one. Make sure you look at three portfolio companies you would invest in and at least three you wouldn't. <laughs> because I've answered that question thinking, phew, like gone out of that one. And then they were like, what else? What else? Uh, and I was like, oh dear, like I've only, uh, I've only looked at one that I would and one that I wouldn't. Um, but thankfully I had my Excel spreadsheet open so I could grab at one of them and, and sort of make up some kind of answer. Um, but I wouldn't recommend that style. So just make sure to be on the safe side, you've covered at least three of each well, because then I think you're covered. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually speaking of what else questions that kind of segues into I think the final the question that we're going to cover today, which is, um, again, another pretty common one. And that's when, when the interviewer asks, you know, what company should our fund invest in? This is another question where I've got what else a few times. So I have definitely been in an interview and I've come with my one bulletproof company and no more. Um, and have <laughs> been what else? And then I'm kind of looking blankly. Proof in VC is no yeah. such thing. No such thing. No <laughs> such thing. But I'm looking blankly at them. They're looking blank. They're looking back at me, and I'm like, you know, there aren't any more. Um, <laughs> well, no. My point is, like, I don't think any company is bulletproof. You're always going to find reasons not to invest and reasons to invest. So, I would love to hear about this bulletproof company because, like, I've never found one. <laughs> this business called Amazon. Uh, so, uh-huh, yes, no, that is true. <laughs> yeah, but. No, I, I I meant bulletproof in the sense that, you know, when you've really constructed an answer, you're like, I can nail got this it. question. Got it, got um, it, got it. Even if, you know, they don't like the individual company, you can't look bad. It's, um, and this is kind of going a bit into the content of the answer. It's, you know, stage appropriate. It's the right size of check. They're probably raising right now. So it's kind of teed up for this fund. Um, and uh, and they what else to me? Uh, and it was very dark. So I, I guess we'll, before before maybe you have a crack at answering this question, re- remember to to have like two or three. Yeah, no, I think that that's a very good one. And I think before I have a stab of answering the question, I think what might be helpful is how do you even go about finding these companies in the first place? Because unless you're in the ecosystem, it's not something you do on a daily basis is to go out and find up and coming young companies as part of your day to day. So 
when I was looking for interesting companies to invest in, um, we've already mentioned the tech crunches of this world. So that's an excellent start. Crunchbase is a very good website to just have a browse, look at the recent um, investment announcements. And, and another thing is, is various accelerators. But LinkedIn is also quite a good one. If you start connecting with founders of businesses you find interesting, they often like articles or other founders' comments. And then you can start building up a little mini portfolio of companies that you find quite interesting. Um, depending on the stage of the company, which is obviously something when you're answering the question, you've got to be aware of, there's no point, for example, at Icebreaker, Dunday recommending a Series B stage company, right? You, you know, you have to think about what's appropriate for the fund. And obviously, it's going to be a lot easier finding a Series B company than it is going to um, finding a, a company that's never invested before and is potentially even in stealth mode it's a lot harder to find those ones that are under the radar that it's just about uh, ready to raise their first institutional round um, so actually throwing back at you today because you focus on the pre-seed seed stage how do you go about finding these companies that are really just at the i dear stage just just about made a website like how do you how do you find these companies yeah so i i mean i i can split those into two two separate questions so how do you find a pre-seed company uh a company at the idea stage um you know the short answer is you you can't <laughs> but uh it may be a kind of fairer answer or like at least a way to, to try and do it is to um, is to look at like the accelerators and incubators of this, this world in your market and see you know some of the companies that sign up so a lot of the time like accelerators and incubators will announce that yeah their new cohort and then you can see these essentially idea stage companies um, but you know that is actually you know a small sliver of the, the interesting idea stage companies out there but you know the miracle of this uh, of this interview process is you maybe need two or three so if you kind of do a bit of trawling, then you, you you might find something. I think for the seed stage, it's actually a bit easier. Um, so again, you're you're looking for accelerators and incubators, but then there are also kind of pre-seed funds. So plugging, you know, talking my own book, Icebreaker. Look at the Icebreaker portfolio and evangelize our com companies. And you can also look at you know funds like Seedcamp as well. And I think this kind of principle of of you know feeder funds. Um, is really quite useful. So again, shout out to Crunchbase here. You can often see um, what companies the fund that you're interviewing at has invested in. And on Crunchbase, you can see who invested in them previously. And by kind of following a few links through, you can identify patterns of kind of earlier investors that whichever fund you like seems to kind of look at. So for example, if you were to go on the Borderton Crunchbase page, you might find that maybe a lot of a lot of Borderton portfolio companies, and I'm making this up, I don't know this is the case, might have come through like Passion Capital or, or a bunch of other seed funds. And then if you wanted to find a, a company for, for Borderton to invest in the Series A, then you could look through the recently announced deals 
from them and and you would have like at least a good signal of things that maybe would be worth looking at and that maybe Auditon would structurally look at. That is part of the job if you were full-time. So that like I've, you know, sat in seed funds and series A funds and have downloaded a CSV of whoever it is, his portfolio and just gone through it methodically. And that's, that's a surefire way the minute you started getting into later stages. Yeah. I think I would say that's a hundred percent a safe bet. The only thing that I would say with that is that probably they've seen that company before. So maybe go with that company as the safe bet because they've probably seen it. It's probably a very good company because it's been backed by the likes of Passion, say. But I think sometimes it's quite good to almost have that, I definitely don't think that they've seen this company and it's under the radar some somehow. And I think What's fantastic about our generation is that I have a fair few friends who are starting their own companies because this is now seen as like a career path. And I'm really fortunate in that I have incredibly intelligent friends and a lot of them are starting their own businesses or know someone that's starting their own businesses. So really just like over the course of when you start thinking about wanting a role in VC, keep your your ear to the ground of like, what your friends are talking about. Are they starting a company? Does it sound interesting? And it's kind of a win-win scenario where you're in the VC interview and you start talking about your friend's company and you know the ins and outs of this company because it's your best friend or one of your closest friends that's starting the business. You know the business model, you know their backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a personal connection and that VC goes, huh, I have not seen this deal and I am not connected to your network that seems to be full of all these interesting ideas and innovations and startups that I don't have access to. And that is attractive. And that's why I want you on, on my team. Um, so there are obviously pros and cons to both methods. And again, like there's no harm in doing both and then evaluating what would be best to put forward during the interview. Yeah, um, and I, I agree. I definitely have pulled some some wild cards out um, when I when I've had them in hand. So I w- I also would advocate uh, trying to do that when you can. But I I think it's it's always good to you know at least have like a let's call it a repeatable way of at least coming up with something which is you know vaguely good or vaguely in line with maybe what what would be expected, even if it's not going to make you special. It means you won't get kicked out of a process for want of an answer. I think maybe just to kind of close this 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 question out, there are some you know hygiene factors around this question. If a if a fund you know only invests in B two B software, then proposing a consumer startup is is going to get you dinged and so on and so forth. I think geography is also something that is quite quite important because especially at the earliest stages. There are a lot of geographies that funds just can't invest in. So this ties into kind of the, the general fund research that we, we we spoke about before. But this is, you know, almost in a sense, the synthesis of that. How can you take all of your context and knowledge about the fund and come up with, you know, suitable and hopefully interesting investments? But, you know, suitable is table stakes, interesting. You need a bit of luck and a bit of favor. Yeah, 100% agree that it ties in really closely with why you're particularly interested in joining our fund. You can use all that knowledge that you've gained from understanding that and making sure that 
that startup that you're putting forward is aligned to what the fund's investment thesis is all about. And I think the next question that would come after that one of what company should we invest in goes into, you know, obviously we kind of tick the hygiene concepts, but sort of why? Um, And I think we'll leave it there and create some suspense for the next episode that we're going to be doing, which is all about company evaluation. An educational cliffhanger, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And uh, thank you so much for everyone that's listened to this episode. We really hope that it has been helpful and educational and informative about how to approach these initial questions that are very important and we've stumbled over during our interview process. Yeah, it's been it's been really good to kind of unpack some of these uh, these questions that have been swirling around my mind and you know hope you you enjoy the start to this mini series thank you so much and if you've got any feedback or just want to reach out to us for some questions about what we've discussed please do feel free at associatedpodcast at gmail.com and do give us a follow on twitter at associated underscore pod thanks bye bye